This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series, Unusual Criminal Defenses. On today's episode, I'll detail a case where political rivalry turns into murder. The murderer would turn himself in right away, confessing to his crime. His defense attorneys had their work cut out for them to keep their client out of the gas chamber. The strategy used would be given the colorful name, the Twinkie defense by the media. But looking back almost 40 years later, we will see that there is a bit more to this story. This is Chapter 2 of Unusual Criminal Defenses, The Twinkie Defense, The Murders of Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk. On November 27, 1978, Daniel James White traveled the short distance from his home to San Francisco City Hall to see Mayor George Moscone. Dan White, until two weeks earlier, had been a member of San Francisco's Board of Supervisors, representing District 8. White's district was comprised of several San Francisco neighborhoods in the southeastern portion of the city. They were predominantly middle-class and lower-middle-class neighborhoods. There was also a large housing project where the elderly and the poor were provided government-subsidized residences. White had been elected in 1977, soon after a ballot measure passed that allowed voters to elect their supervisors by district instead of by a citywide vote. This change ushered in the most diverse board of supervisors ever seen in San Francisco, or perhaps anywhere before. Ella Hill Hutch was the first African-American to be elected to the board. Gordon Lau was the first Asian-American. Carol Ruth Silver was the first feminist. And Harvey Milk was elected as the first openly gay member of the board. They, like Dan White, were very invested in representing the needs of their individual communities rather than lobbyists or corporate interests. Dan White's district was historically underserved by its representatives, consisting of the working-class neighborhoods of the Outer Mission and Visitation Valley. White himself had grown up in Visitation Valley as the second oldest of a large Irish Catholic family. But just 10 months later, White resigned his position as supervisor. Mayor Moscone selected a replacement, but just days after tendering his resignation, White had a change of heart. His constituents, who counted on him to make a change in the district and had campaigned for him tirelessly, urged him to reconsider. White had spoken with Moscone on November 14th, just four days after quitting, to ask him to reinstate him as supervisor. White believed that the mayor had agreed to give him his job back. He'd even returned his resignation letter to him. But he soon found out that Moscone was planning to formally announce the appointment of another man, Dan Haranzi, to the position on November 27th. So White arrived at City Hall that day, carrying a 38 caliber revolver and 10 extra hollow-point shells in his pants pocket. When he arrived at the building, he didn't enter the front door. There were metal detectors that had recently been installed due to the increased number of threats to politicians and other government officials. Instead, he came in through a first-floor window. White reached Moscone's office, but was told to wait. Moscone was meeting with Supervisor Willie Brown, who would later become mayor himself. As Brown exited through a side door, White was ushered in. 
he began to complain to Moscone about his planned appointment of Horanzi. As White became more adamant and angry, Moscone told him in no uncertain terms that the decision was made and White was off the board. The argument became loud, and Moscone suggested they retreat to another room next to his office, where it was more private. Once there, White pulled out the revolver and pointed it at the mayor. He fired two bullets into Moscone, hitting him in the shoulder and chest. As he fell to the floor, White pumped two more bullets into Moscone's head, killing him instantly. Leaving by a side door, White then walked to the supervisor's office and encountered Harvey Milk. He asked Milk to step inside the office to speak with him, and Milk complied. Once inside, White closed the door and pulled out the reloaded gun. He fired four shots at Milk first, piercing his wrist as he raised a hand to defend himself. He then shot him twice in the chest, and as he'd done to Moscone, fired two final bullets into Milk's head, killing him. An hour later, White turned himself in. His confession was recorded on tape, where White can be heard cheerfully stating, I just shot him. Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk were dead, both murdered by former Supervisor Dan White. His three-week trial would begin on April 25, 1979. The prosecuting attorney was Thomas Norton, and White was represented by Douglas Schmidt and Stephen Scher. The stakes were high for White's defense. Should White be convicted of first-degree murder, he would be subject to the death penalty. Proposition 7 had just passed, making it an automatic capital offense in California to kill a public official. Ironically, Dan White had voted for the bill. Harvey Milk had opposed it. In order to spare his client the gas chamber, Schmidt focused not on the murders or even the victims, but on Dan White's character and his record of public service. Born in Long Beach, California, White was the son of working-class parents who moved their family of nine children to San Francisco. White was painted by his defense team as an all-American boy with roots in the city where he attended Woodrow Wilson High School, played football, and became class valedictorian. White went on to join the Army after graduating high school. He was sent to Vietnam and served as a sergeant in the 101st Airborne Division from 1969 to 1970. He then joined the San Francisco Police Department but quit his job after he observed another officer beating a handcuffed black man. He reported the officer to officials, something that his fellow cops and his sergeant would berate him for doing. White was a law and order kind of guy, his attorney told the court. When he saw a wrong being done, he always sought to right it. He resigned from the SFPD after receiving backlash from his fellow officers for making the report. He next applied and was accepted to the San Francisco Fire Academy to train as a firefighter. There he excelled, graduating first in his class. He felt that some of his African-American classmates were being unfairly flunked out of the academy and spoke up to his superiors about it. He even tutored some of the men to help them pass the academy exam. White, now married with a child on the way, still lived in the Visitation Valley area of San Francisco. He was prompted to throw his hat in the ring for a seat on the Board of Supervisors, wanting to fight for the needs of his community. He was one of 13 people running for the position, 
and had no political experience or formal education beyond high school, but the people were behind him. He campaigned in every neighborhood in his district, including the Sunnydale housing projects, something no candidate had done before. He'd grown up across the street from the projects and was well-known by many of the mostly African-American residents. The district residents campaigned for white, handing out brochures and knocking on doors. There was a street gang who called themselves the Sons of Sunnydale, who also campaigned for White, distributing flyers and attending his rallies. Dan White easily won the District 8 seat. He set about to make good on his campaign promises to his constituents. He even secured jobs for some of the Sons of Sunnydale gang at the new Pier 39 construction project. But White became disillusioned with the political machine, the defense would say. He tried to do his job to the best of his ability, but politics was a blood sport, and White was out of his element. Deals were made between him and his colleagues, and he kept his side of the bargain. But when it came time for them to reciprocate, he was ignored and pushed aside. He became increasingly frustrated and depressed by the job. He was also experiencing financial difficulties. He had given up his higher-paying firefighter job in order to take the board position. A city charter didn't allow a person to hold two city jobs simultaneously. With a family to support, White's $9,600 a year government position didn't go far. He and his wife opened a fast food restaurant at Pier 39, hoping to supplement their income. They both worked long hours there, but it had not turned a profit. He began to suffer from depression. He went to his city hall office less and less and avoided his constituents. While his whole life, Dan White had been athletic, trim, and fit, he now began to look disheveled and unhealthy. He began to binge on sugary foods and cola drinks. Mentally and emotionally, he began to spiral out of control, the defense claimed. They put five psychiatrists on the stand, who all testified that Dan White was not in control of his faculties. The once upstanding young man and promising politician was unable to navigate the corrupt political system he was thrown into. He only wanted to do good, and it broke him, they explained to the jury. A friend of Dan White's, who was a San Francisco homicide inspector, Frank Falzone, even testified for the defense, calling White a man among men. As an interesting aside, Falzone would help solve several high-profile murder cases, including the Richard Ramirez Night Stalker case. He would be the one to find the clues that helped identify Ramirez as a night stalker after he traveled to San Francisco and committed two more murders. As for Dan White's diet, that could have been a factor that took him over the edge and caused him to shoot Moscone in milk, one psychiatrist explained. Psychiatrist Martin Blinder was on the stand for almost an entire day. Later, he would say that the message he was trying to have the jury consider was, what is it that makes a good man kill? He talked about how Dan White's life had unraveled bit by bit until he couldn't take it anymore. His depression was exacerbated, Blinder said, by the sugary diet of Cokes, Twinkies, Ho-Hos, and Ding-Dongs. Those are prepackaged snack cakes found in most convenience stores in America. The junk food, he explained, just made White more depressed, and he binged even more as a result. Yes, the defense admitted, White was guilty of killing the two men, but was he really responsible? His depression and stress brought on by his job, his financial problems, and his overindulgence in junk food caused him to snap and irrationally decide to kill those who, in his diminished state, 
he held responsible for his problems. He also felt betrayed by George Moscone, who he believed had gone back on his promise to reinstate him to the board. His constituents were pushing him to return to his position, and while he did not want to do so, he also didn't want to let down those who helped get him elected. He was in a quandary and felt desperate and out of control, the defense argued. The defense experts all testified that White was incapable of deliberation due to his diminished capacity, a factor that was required to find him guilty of first-degree murder. Finally, White's tape confession was played in court. In it, he could be heard crying while he admitted to shooting the mayor and the supervisor. Some of the jury members wept while listening to it. The prosecution's case against White was simple. If Dan White was a man out of control, it was because he saw Moscone and Milk as his enemies, they said. He wanted revenge, and he planned to do just that when he'd entered City Hall that November day. The final straw for White, they told the jury, was that he believed Milk had swayed Moscone to appoint another person to his board position, because without his conservative opponent, Milk would have a better chance to push his liberal agenda through. The prosecution only had one psychiatrist testify for their side. They also pointed out that White had arrived with a loaded weapon and avoided the metal detectors on his way into the building by going through a window. These were clear signs of premeditation, they said. As well, White had reloaded his police service revolver before shooting Milk, a very calculated act. He'd fired the last bullets into both men's heads to make sure they were dead. The medical examiner would testify that if they had not received the headshots, both men most likely would have survived the shooting. The defense countered that yes, White did carry a gun into City Hall, but they had witnesses testify that others did so too, including Diane Feinstein, who became mayor after Moscone's death. White had reloaded the gun, but they said that was something he would have been trained to do as a police officer and might have done so automatically. Finally, many people, they claimed, accessed the first floor of City Hall through the window that White had used. Okay, say it with me. Um, what? The jury would later say that the prosecution didn't put on much of a case. Perhaps prosecutors thought it was an open and shut case. White had confessed to the murder of two people. But like the defense, they didn't emphasize the loss of the two men that were gunned down by Dan White. Some believe that this was because Harvey Milk was homosexual. Because it was potentially a death penalty case, prospective jurors were asked whether they opposed the death penalty before they were selected to serve. They were more likely to be selected if they said they were for the death penalty. This, in turn, caused the makeup of the jury to be more conservative. Conservatives generally tend to support the death penalty. Because the district attorney knew he was working with a more conservative jury pool, they believed they would be less sympathetic to the openly gay victim, Harvey Milk. In any case, Milk and Moscone were not brought up in the trial nearly as much as Dan White, who was portrayed by the defense as a good man who snapped and should be forgiven. There was no question that Dan White was guilty, one juror told sfgate.com in 2003. The prosecution thought it was such a clear-cut case, they didn't do their job. On May 21, 1979, the jury came back with a verdict. They found Dan White guilty of two counts, not of first-degree murder, but of involuntary manslaughter. The judge gave him the maximum sentence allowed at the time, seven years, eight months in prison. When the public was made aware of the verdict, the city exploded. 
Harvey Milk was a very popular figure in San Francisco, and the gay community believed that justice had not been served because the jury was anti-gay. A large and angry crowd formed, walking from the Castro District to San Francisco City Hall. On the way, they chanted, Avenge Harvey Milk, and He Got Away With Murder. Over 3,000 people gathered and began hurling rocks and bottles at the glass windows and doors of City Hall. A newspaper dispenser was set on fire and thrown into the lobby of the building. As police cars arrived, they were also lit on fire. When asked by a reporter why they were causing such destruction, one rioter said, Just tell them we ate too many Twinkies. The San Francisco chief of police told officers not to retaliate, but that night, several police officers showed up in riot gear to the Castro, a predominantly gay area of the city. They entered the Elephant Walk Bar on Castro Street and began beating patrons. They then spilled out into the street to begin striking residents on the street with their fists and batons. Hearing about the melee, the chief ordered officers out of the neighborhood. Over 60 officers and 100 gay residents were hospitalized with injuries. The city suffered over $1 million in property damage. The riots became known as the White Night Riots. A reporter picked up the term Twinkie defense, and the press ran with it. What is commonly understood and often repeated about the murders of George Moscone and Harvey Milk was that Dan White was a conservative, homophobic man who killed Mayor Moscone because he would not give him his job back, and Harvey Milk because he had influenced the mayor in that decision. The Twinkie defense would forever be cited as one of the strangest, although effective, defenses used in a murder trial. The public would remember that psychiatrists had testified that it was over the consumption of the sugary confection that had caused Dan White to go mad and kill because of his homophobia and rage. The jury, they said, bought it because they believed that his binging on sugar led to his diminished capacity and he could not be held responsible for his actions. But while colorful, this is a myth. I will share the true events that led up to the murders as well as some additional information about Dan White and why he may have decided to kill. The Twinkie defense was a term coined by the media after the trial of Dan White. However, it was never specifically stated in the trial that White was binging on Twinkie snack cakes. In fact, the name Twinkie was said to have only been mentioned once during the trial. Defense attorney Douglas Schmidt said he did not remember it being mentioned at all during testimony. One of the defense witnesses, psychiatrist Martin Blinder, may have mentioned Twinkies in passing, but it was simply to give an example of the type of junk foods Dan White had claimed to have binged on in the days leading up to the murders. The defense has since clarified that junk food was not a significant part of their case at all. What they were arguing was diminished capacity. They based their defense on testimony that showed White suffered from bouts of depression, and that, coupled with the stress of his government job and his financial difficulties, made him snap. It was this diagnosed mental illness that was the factor. The consumption of junk food was insignificant to their defense. In addition, Dr. Blinder also testified for the defense that White was a man of, quote, rigid values and locked-up emotions, who, without the stressors of the corrupt political climate he found himself in, was a good and decent man. It was the media that played up the Twinkie defense angle, not White's attorneys. The term Twinkie defense began being used interchangeably with the true legal term diminished capacity. 
And as for the claim that Dan White was homophobic and hated Harvey Milk because he was gay, there could be an alternate case made for this commonly held belief as well. One of the people who knew Dan White best during the time leading up to and after the election and up until the murders was his campaign manager, Ray Sloan. Not only was Sloan White's campaign manager, but he became his chief aide once he was elected. He was also his business partner, having invested in the fast food restaurant along with White and his wife. Sloan also worked at the restaurant, and he and White were close. It was also Sloan who encouraged White to ask Moscone for his job back. Ray Sloan is gay. He would later say that while he was sure that Dan White was aware of this, it was something that never was a factor in their business relationship or friendship. Nor did White seem to have an issue with Sloan's sexual orientation, he says. Then there is White's record on the board. While he is often depicted as an ultra-conservative, very religious Catholic, his record doesn't bear this out. While White ran as tough on crime and a traditional family values candidate, he also saw himself as a champion for the underserved, the poor, the elderly, minorities, and other marginalized groups. This would also be in line with the Catholic teachings White grew up with. So when he began working on the Board of Supervisors, he had much more in common with Harvey Milk politically than he had differences. They both served in the military, they both worked against big money interests, and they both represented marginalized communities and fought for their rights. White admired Milk's agenda of helping his own district and the underserved gay community. He felt it was akin to his own goals of serving his constituents, who were mainly minorities and the poor. Although White was often associated with the more conservative faction of the board, he had voted with Milk on more liberal issues, including a vote to save the Pride Center, which served as a meeting place for seniors, as well as gay organizations. The legislation that Harvey Milk was most focused on was the Gay Rights Ordinance. This legislation would help protect gays and lesbians from being dismissed from their jobs because of their sexual orientation. White voted at the committee level for the bill. Then White asked for Milk's vote to help keep our proposed facility out of his district. His constituents were against the plan to build a facility called Youth Campus in Portola Valley. Youth Campus would serve juvenile offenders who had committed serious crimes like murder, rape, and arson. The residents felt that crime was already too high in their neighborhoods, and they didn't want the added threat of this type of facility in their midst. White asked Milk if he could count on him to vote against Youth Campus. Milk didn't give him a firm answer, but White assumed he was in agreement. But Milk cast his vote for Youth Campus when it came up, and White lost. He was embarrassed because he'd assured the residents of Portola Valley that he had the votes he needed to defeat the proposal. After that, he was very angry with Milk and sought to retaliate. He began voting against all of Milk's legislation. When the Gay Rights Ordinance came up before the board, White voted against it. He was the only supervisor on the board to do so. Still angry, White began to denounce the proposed gay parade to the press. This is most likely how Dan White first came to be portrayed as anti-gay. White was now losing his shine with the public. The residents of his district were disappointed after his failure with Youth Campus, and the gay community who once saw him as a friend and supporter now saw him as their opposition. At the same time, Harvey Milk's popularity was rising even further. Not only was he supported by the gay community, 
but he was also endorsed by the labor unions during his candidacy. He received a lot of media attention, and his energy and his commitment made him an often quoted and popular politician. It's possible that White had never experienced this type of setback. He had been a high school valedictorian, a decorated war vet, a police officer, and even a firefighter who'd received accolades for saving a woman and her child from a burning building. He was a hero in his neighborhood, and I'm sure he felt like he could accomplish anything he set his mind to. But the reality was, he could not win every political fight. After his very first defeat, he grew disillusioned with the job. In only 10 months on the board, he submitted his resignation to Mayor Moscone on November 10th. But his constituents began to criticize this move. They were afraid that someone would be appointed to replace him that would not have their interests at heart, and they encouraged him to ask for his job back. Ray Sloan, his friend and closest advisor, also told him it was his duty to continue to serve his district. But once again, he failed when Moscone declined to reinstate him. White found out that not only Milk, but also Supervisors Willie Brown and Carol Ruth Silver were lobbying against his reinstatement. They preferred the more liberal-leaning Dan Haranzi, who Moscone was considering to take his place. On November 14th, Dan White met with Mayor Moscone to talk about his reinstatement. At the conclusion of the meeting, White believed it was a done deal, although Moscone still had not made his decision. He told White he would let him know in a few days. However, a tragedy struck before he could do so. On November 18th, word came from Guyana of the mass suicide of Jim Jones's People's Temple. Jones had begun amassing followers to his church in San Francisco, and many of those who had traveled to Guyana with him were former San Francisco residents. Many San Franciscans lost loved ones when over 900 members of the People's Temple drank or were forced to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. Congressman Leo Ryan was also shot and killed while trying to leave Guyana. He had arrived with the television crew and others to investigate claims that the People's Temple members were being held against their will. Ryan and four other people were killed by Jim Jones's armed guards, and others were seriously injured, including Ryan's aide, the future congressperson Jackie Spear. San Francisco City Hall was in mourning, and Mayor Moscone delayed making his decision about Dan White's reinstatement. A week later, he decided not to reinstate White, but to appoint Horanzi instead. This set off Dan White, who now sought revenge. So was it diminished capacity born out of depression that caused Dan White to become a murderer? Or was it simply anger and rage because White felt betrayed by Moscone and Milk? Dan White's confession right after the murders made to his friend and former colleague Frank Falzone highlights what he was thinking and feeling just before he pulled the trigger. About Mayor Moscone, he said, It was just like a roaring in my ears. And then it just came to me, you know. It just wasn't registering what I was going to do now, and how this would affect my family, knowing he's going to go out and lie to the press and tell them that I wasn't a good supervisor and that people didn't want me. And then that was it. Then I just shot him. That was it. It was over. About shooting Harvey Milk, he said, And then I saw Harvey Milk across the hall at the supervisors, and I said, well, I'll go talk to him. And it just didn't make any impression on him. 
I started to say how hard I worked for it and what it meant to me and my family. And then my reputation as a hard worker, good, honest person. And he just kind of smirked at me as if to say, too bad. And then I just got all flushed and, and hot and I shot him. He wanted to kill Moscone because he feared losing his reputation. He feared how his family and others would think of him now that he'd failed. He thought Moscone would embarrass him by saying he wasn't a good supervisor and people didn't want him. A narcissistic person experiences criticism as life-threatening. If anyone maligns them in any way, it is akin to being destroyed. Their self-image is the most important thing, and for anyone to threaten to reveal them as flawed or imperfect has to be stopped. He appealed to Milk, saying he was a, quote, good, honest person, and so believed he should be rewarded for that. Most realize that life doesn't always work out the way you plan, so you adapt. It's just how life works. But for a person who sees themselves as better, more important, or more significant than others, failure is not an option. And since he saw Milk as the person who was partially responsible for that failure, that was unforgivable. He thought Milk was smirking at him as if to say, too bad. He became flushed, hot, he says. Anger welled up inside him, and he lashed out by killing his perceived enemy. His diminished capacity defense was successful, but it has been reconsidered over the years, and now most believe that he should have been convicted of first-degree murder. No matter how or why the jury voted to convict him only of voluntary manslaughter, due to homophobia, their belief that he was not in control of his actions, or because they thought of him as a good man who simply snapped, the results are the same. Dan White was given a very light sentence for killing two innocent men in a very cold, calculated, and brutal way. Dan White served five years of his seven-year sentence before being paroled on January 7, 1984. He served out his one year of parole in Southern California because the California Board of Corrections was concerned for his safety should he return to San Francisco. He moved back to San Francisco after his parole ended, although some of the city's residents protested his return. He returned to his home to live with his wife and children. His wife stood by his side throughout his imprisonment. They were even allowed conjugal visits while he was in prison, which produced one more child for the Whites. White was unwelcome in his hometown of San Francisco. He was easily recognized and was often harassed and threatened. He soon left his home to move to an undisclosed location in Northern California. He continued to visit his family at their Visitation Valley home, arriving in different cars so as not to be recognized by neighbors. White had always wanted to visit Ireland and took a four-month trip there in 1985. He loved the countryside and visiting the places his ancestors originated from but he especially loved that he was anonymous there. However, he had to return home. It was not possible for him to live in a country where he could not work, nor was it right for him to ask his family to be uprooted from the only home they'd known and join him in Ireland. Dan White was free, but he was trapped. On October 21, 1985, less than two years after his release from prison, he ran a garden hose from the exhaust pipe to the inside of his car, killing himself by asphyxiation inside his garage. Dan White was dead at age 39. In 1998, Frank Falzone, 
the homicide cop and friend of White's, who he had first confessed to after committing the murders, told Mike Weiss, author of Double Play, The Hidden Passions Behind the Double Assassination of George Moscone and Harvey Milk, that White made a second confession to him the year before his suicide. White had intended to kill not only Moscone and Milk, but also had supervisors Willie Brown and Carol Ruth Silver on his hit list. Falzone quoted White as telling him, I was on a mission. I wanted four of them. Carol Ruth Silver, she was the biggest snake. And Willie Brown, he masterminded the whole thing. Falzone indicated that he believed White, stating, I felt like I had been hit by a sledgehammer. I found out it was a premeditated murder. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'll be traveling next week, so a regular episode will not be released on Monday. I will return with another chapter of Unusual Criminal Defenses on March 26th. But not to worry, I have a special bonus episode coming out next week. It's a brand new offering from Once Upon a Crime that I'll be sharing with you periodically. Look for that in your feed next week. I hope you like it. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.